Today's scripture reading is taken from First uh, Timothy chapter five, verse two to chapter six, verse. Uh, sorry, I'm distracted. <laughs> Today's scripture reading is taken from First Timothy chapter five, verse one to chapter six, verse two. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she leaves. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage the households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are really widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it threads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying of, on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, uh, 
those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by the good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. This is the word of God. Thank you so much, Sister Wendy, for <clears throat> reading God's word for us this morning. As you sit and listen to that, you can probably imagine why I have been approaching this passage for the past three weeks with much fear and trepidation. When you preach through books, sooner or later, you encounter difficult words. So let's ask the Lord to shape our hearts after His. Father God, we thank you that we can have an encounter with the living God through your word. So we invite you now to speak to our hearts, inform our convictions, our opinions, and our body life as this gathered body of Christ. We invite you to do this for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. So I need to confess that this is not my kind of text or my kind of message. I am a, a big picture pastor. I'm a jayo, let's go kind of pastor. I'm not the kind of pastor that likes to read the small print. And because of that, there are some brothers who love this church and who love me, who have been sitting down with me every week saying, now pastor, let's talk about policy. Policies are important, right? Policies are like a little tap on the brakes to keep us from rushing headlong into an unanticipated accident. You know, policies are like providing lanes that keep us all going in the same direction so we don't encounter challenges or road rage in the middle of church or on the highway. But policies are challenging for some pastors not the least of which this pastor. And so I suspect that Timothy was a little bit like me. And he was encountering a church that was diverse and complicated. And so we have preserved for us in God's word an old missionary helping this young pastor develop some policies. Because the primary question that the church had to ask in Ephesus is, how do we live life together? Now that God has brought together this beautiful mess, how do we do life together in a way that gives Him glory, in a way that honors and respects one another? How do we relate one to one another? How do we structure ourselves to support needs and also make disciples? How do we relate to those who serve? How do we relate to those we serve? These are all questions that the church at Ephesus was struggling with. And so from his prison cell in Rome, the Apostle Paul begins to write this young pastor and set some lanes just to put together 
some policies. And I acknowledge, as I read this, I'm really looking at four different sermons. So we're going to have to get into this, and it's going to feel like we're rushing through it. If you have questions, then come by the office sometime this week. We'll talk about it some more, or perhaps at least one of these deserves maybe an equipped session in the coming months. There are four issues the church at Ephesus was dealing with. There are four issues that that we all will deal with, and basically the overall theme is this. A healthy family is a disciplined family. And there's basically two kinds of church disciplines, just as there are two kinds of family discipline. When we think of church discipline, we usually think of the second kind, which is, uh uh-oh, someone has done something bad. Make me look bad, to make the church look bad, to make Jesus look bad. Correction. That's called corrective discipline. But the majority of discipline that's talked about in the New Testament is not corrective discipline, but formative discipline. If the family, any family does no formative discipline, they will constantly have to be doing what? Corrective discipline. No father likes to hear that while they've been at work dealing with stressful things all day, their spouse has been saying to their children, just wait till your dad gets home. Because that's corrective discipline. That's why the Apostle Paul is writing now about formative discipline. Discipline And the first issue is gender issues and generational issues. How do we relate to the opposite gender? How do we relate to a different generation than is our own? And essentially, remember last week, the Apostle Paul reminded Timothy, hey, let no one despise your youth. But this week he's saying, but nevertheless, remember you are young. So here's what he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Right away, we can see that the goal in the Christian life for every single relationship in all of our relationships, whether they're generational or gender relationships, the goal is God's glory as demonstrated in holy behaviors, in purity. Remember, Paul had just finished writing Timothy in chapter 4, set the believers an example in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in your what? Holiness, in your purity. And and this word pure is the very same word that is used in the New Testament in reference to the temple utensils. Everything that was used in the temple for the worship of God was purified. It was sanctified, set apart for God's glory. Now, do you hear what we're saying here? We're saying that every relationship we have has been sanctified. It is to be pure. It is to be set apart for God's glory. I mean, some of you think you married for love, right? No, you did not. You married for the glory of God. Remember the marriage bed and keep it, what? Holy. A lot of Christians, I find, believe that they were saved for heaven. No, we were not. We were saved for God's glory. Therefore, be holy 
as God is holy, everything about us is about the glory of God, and it only becomes obvious in holy behaviors. That's the evidence of His Spirit working in me. So here's what the Apostle Paul says. Do not rebuke. This word rebuke literally means to lay flat. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage. There's no other word, right? There's no treat everybody this way. It's all the same word. It means don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him, build him up as a father. Don't lay out younger men, but encourage them as your brothers. Don't, don't flatten the older sisters, but encourage them as mothers. I mean, we have this preserved somewhat in Asian culture. That's why our boys grew up in Asia and learned how to call all, all older women auntie or all, all older men uncle. And then when they went back to Canada, they had all the, everybody saying, hey, I'm not your auntie. They learned that in an Asian culture. But, but you see what? In God's family, it raises it a level higher. Younger men were encouraged to call their older brother's father and, and treat him this way. This is, by the way, why the Catholic tradition is to say Mother Teresa, Mother Mary, Father Ian. Not really. <laughs> this, this is that tradition. It's not because they were actually replacing God the Father. It's because of this is how we do life together. Don't, don't, don't think you've got so much er, you know, arrogant education that you can rebuke an older man. Encourage him. It's just, just The thing about showing God's glory in every relationship is remembering that every single person we meet in church is dealing with something. They don't need your correction. They need your encouragement. Treat one another this way because it glorifies God. Well, the, the second issue, and, and the bulk of the text deals with this, and, and unfortunately we're not going to be able to go into it in great detail, detail, but mercy and ministry issues. How, again, can the church meet needs with godly mercy while at the same time focusing on making disciples and pushing the gospel out there. How, how is it possible? And, and here we see the Apostle Paul beginning with this statement, honor widows. Or some translations would, would interpret this as recognize widows. The, the reason recognition is not the best is, is we're not talking about giving them a certificate and praying over them. It's not about giving them a little plaque and say, widow, congratulations. It, it, it's honoring them. Why? Because it is important to God. We can see this throughout Scripture that God is a God who loves widows, orphans, and foreigners. Those of you who read the E! News, you saw the title was, You Are Not Alone. God doesn't desire that any be alone. And that's why Psalm 68 says, God is 
the father of the fatherless. He's protector of widows. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God sends out an edict for the people of Israel. Every three years, people are to take the whole of the tithe for the entire year. 10% of all of their produce for the entire year. They're going to set it in one place in every town, in every village, and every foreigner, every, every Levite, because he has no inheritance, every stranger, every orphan, every widow is to come and take. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 through 29. In John chapter 19, just as Jesus is about to give up his life for the universe, he looks down at John and says, look after my mom. This, this matters to God. And the first Christian pastor, Pastor James, in James chapter 1, verse 27. The only time religion, that word, is mentioned in the Bible, he writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It matters to God. Widows, orphans, honor widows who what? Here's the thing that makes this a little uncomfortable. Who truly are widows, honor them. And this whole section could be summarized with these two verses. Verse 3, the first. Verse 16, the end. Honor widows who are truly widows. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Why is this? Now, in Singapore, we don't truly have a single-payer universal health care system. So I just Googled crowded emergency rooms in Canada. You know, the queues at emergency for those nations that do have a single-payer universal health care system, they are universally well-known and, and probably stereotyped and hyperbolic. But I will say, as a Canadian in Canada, there are long queues at emergency rooms in Canada. Now, if you have a heart attack, there's no queue for you. If you have somehow accidentally lost a limb, like a leg or an arm, you're about to bleed out, there is no queue for that. But if you have a boo-boo, if you have the sniffles, and you go to emergency just because plasters and cough syrup are free, you are going to be sitting in a queue until you do have a heart attack. <laughs> so so here's, here's the problem that every church in the first century and the 21st century and every government that tries to act like a first century church has. There are two problems they will constantly bump up against. Number one is we have finite resources. Not even China has enough resources to buy every piece of property in the world. Resources are inherently of finite nature. We do not have limitless resources. We are not like God. We have the resources by God's will and people's generosity we have. The second problem is not only do we have finite resources, we have a fallen nature. 
And I guarantee you, if people can get cough syrup for free at emergency, they will not go to the pharmacy and pay $1.99 for it. So the situation at the church was, the church, when it was discovered that they were supporting widows, suddenly had a whole bunch of widows. Because the lifespan was not enormous. You know, Singapore has one of the highest lifespans in the world. But, but in the first century, lifespan for men was, was quite low. I, I would likely already be gone then. Who lives to be 60 as a man in the first century when there's wars like there are, when there's diseases like there are? Who, who does? And, and so they had to establish a policy. What does it really constitute those who are, number one, truly alone. What does that mean? That means if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show what? Godliness. That's the goal of every relationship, in church, in family. Let them learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In, in other words, this term make some return. Some uh, translations, like the New Living Translation, says repay their parents for taking care of them. This is why I had to ask my mission board to let me leave and go back to Vancouver. Because my father at 83 years of age, was lying in a diaper. And he changed mine. Not once, but dozens of times. He got up with me. He held me in his arms. And I needed to do the same. Why? Because it gives God glory. When children are encouraged to love their parents back. But, but secondly, the issue is this. It gives God the opposite of glory when pagans do for their parents what God's people don't do. And this was the reason for Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. Our CG, sorry, our Pongo CG is studying Mark and, and, and some of you who aren't, you, you may remember the story of, of when the Pharisees saw that, that Jesus' disciples weren't properly doing a ceremonial washing of their hands. And, and Jesus said, you Pharisees are, are so pompous. You, you, you have added so many traditions, including telling your own parents, all the things I would give to you, I can't because I'm giving them to the Lord. That does not bring God glory. You're worse than an unbeliever if you allow your parents to live like they have no children. Let that not be said about God's family. Second, um, those who qualified are those who have entrusted themselves utterly to God. 
She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Why is she the living dead? She is the living dead because, as Paul says, her desires are her focus, not God's glory. And and Paul would say to the Ephesian church and and to the Singapore church, don't be an enabler. We live in a codependent society where people, especially what women, are raised to believe that they are responsible for everybody else's happiness. No, don't enable that. Let's love those and serve those and minister to those who have God's glory as their one and only aim. Those who are older. Now, I'm not sure why the Apostle Paul set the age of 60 for women. I suspect it comes from his own experience. He pastored, remember, a church in Corinth. He started that church. He stayed for two and a half years pastoring in Ephesus. I imagine he must have known something. He'd had some experience. Let her be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, we suddenly have a window opened up to the possibility that widows were a part of the ministry team in the early church. They, they didn't head for retirement and just enjoyed the support of the family of God. They served the family of God to God's glory. Let them be enrolled, is what the Apostle Paul said. Now, I know we're rushing, but the third area is elder issues. I, I hate to say this, but um, when I encounter churches that are in trouble... About 90% of the time, it's because they have elder issues. And, and let me clarify this, because some of you have already heard it from Pastor Eugene when he taught on this passage on the characteristics and qualifications of elders, but traditionally, we as Baptists have this view, two offices in the church, pastor and deacon. But in the scriptures, there's two offices in the church, elder and deacon. Just to be clear. Now, now, typically, we make distinctions. We call some elders pastors, and some elders we call elders. But here are the issues as designated by the Apostle Paul. Elder issues, first of all, are this. By the way, two things to note, this word rule. It's always difficult to discuss God thoughts in an English language culture. Because we try and interpret them, and often we unintentionally refract the Word of God through the filter of Western culture. This word rule comes from a secular word that simply means to stand up. So when the Apostle Paul is saying, let the elders who rule well, what he's saying is, let those who stand out while standing up be considered worthy. It's, it's the same word that he used for widows. Let them receive honor. In this case, double honor, especially those who do what? 
preach and teach. Now, this informs us of something because I kind of have the feeling that we have been insinuating that all elders need to be able to preach and teach. All elders need to not look awkward when they're on this platform. That is at least not the case in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there were clearly some elders who preached and taught. All elders should be able to teach, but not necessarily preach. Not necessarily gifted public speakers. But there was clearly some elders who preached and who taught, and there were some elders who qualified because of some other godly characteristics in their lives, who taught through their behaviors, through shepherding conversations, who led and shepherded people through their character and calling, not through their gifting. Now, we tend to, in the contemporary world, separate those by saying, okay, preaching and teaching elders we'll call pastors. And the other elders we'll call elders. And, and some people have gone so far as to say, well, that's why there's two different words. That's why there's episkopos and there's and presbyteron. Presbyteron are the preaching elders. Episkopos are the ruling elders. Um, you can have that opinion, but Scripture doesn't suggest that. Because the only word he uses here is presbyteron, elders are worthy of honor, especially those presbyteron who preach and teach. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Let me just say this. Grace Baptist Church is a generous church. You glorify God in the way you support your elders and your pastors. You should celebrate that and sense God's pleasure for that. It is not always the case in Asia. I remember when we first moved to a country, we were shocked when we realized how little the pastor was getting paid. Two children, no house, that means nothing to leave his children. That meant he was guaranteed to be impoverished all his life and his children unless they became doctors lawyers engineers you know the story they would also be impoverished for the rest of their life so when i joined and was invited to join the church council i recommended that we immediately double his salary and put aside an amount to help him get into a house they debated on it for six weeks and at the end of it they decided that they would increase his salary by 50 ringgit A year, which, by the way, won't buy one book. Bless you, because you give God glory in the way you support missions, the way you support pastoral ministry. This gives glory to God. So we support them. I don't know if you can read the small print, but not all of them. Second, we trust them. Until we don't. Now, <clears throat> one of the tricky things we have today is uh, when we're looking for a pastor, when we're looking for a shepherd, we, we kind of put together a headhunting com uh, committee and, and then we eventually invite someone to pastor our church that we don't know that well. You, you understand we're trying to change that here at Grace. We're trying to disciple one another. We say our vision is to be a disciple-making church. We want to see God raise up pastors from within. 
That means when we bring a man before the congregation, you should vote on somebody you know, and since you vote on somebody you know, you should trust them. Don't vote yes for people you don't trust. And if you vote yes, then trust them until you don't. Uh, this is the challenge, and we, we need to be cautious about this. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing out of partiality. That means when your pastor, I look, look this way, when, when this pastor does wrong, you should not say, well, he's our pastor, we're going to support him. Right? See, here, here is, oh, I missed something, right? I missed a, a verse. The, the verse that says, do not receive a charge toward an elder without two or three witnesses. Now, if you think about this, this is just following the principle of Matthew 18. When your brother sins, go to him. If he doesn't listen to you, bring others with you. Now, now, this is really important. Every single pastor, every elder who serves among us, their door should always be open to anyone who comes and say, Pastor, you said this, it hurt me. And if that pastor refuses to turn from the hurt he's causing, if that pastor is teaching something that does not come from the heart of God, that is not in his word, then God's people have an obligation to go to Him. And this is not for everybody. But if He persists in His sin, bring Him publicly before the church. So that others may fear. Now, it doesn't mean so that other church members will fear. It's so that other pastors will be humbled in their spirit and feel grief and realize, yes, I don't get a mulligan. That, that's why any pastor who tells you, man, I love to preach, you should be worried about that guy. Be, because bearing God's word and presenting it to his people is not something that should be taken lightly. Pastors often spend sleepless nights on Saturday because, oh God, let it be your word and not from my bent and broken heart. The resources of time you have are, are finite. Right? They're, they're finite. And I am living in my fallen nature. Trust pastors until they demonstrate they are not worthy of it. That is a policy that glorifies God. Now, now, why do pastors, not everyone, but why do pastors need to be brought before the church? Because their ministry is public. Our ministry can do public blessing or public damage. Take this seriously. It's set forth in God's Word. Final thing. A service issues. Now, I, I understand and realize that this passage of Scripture, many have been used to justify slavery. Uh, people have used it. I, I'm a Southern Baptist because I come from Southern Canada. 
No, because my parents were reached by Southern Baptist missionaries. And Southern Baptists started, they only began to collaborate as a, as a body of believers because Northern Baptists wouldn't let them send missionaries because they were what? Slave owners. And, and feeling morally outraged, people would point to verses like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And it just says, those of you who are slaves, bond servants. Now, now here again, it is very difficult to look at this text without understanding the context of service in the first century. We want it to have be all like nice, clean categories. But basically, in order to understand leadership in the New Testament, we need to hear the words of Jesus again and hear Him say, if you want to be first, then you should be last. Because the first among you shall be last, and the last among you shall be first. So everything you know about leadership is turned upside down in the heart of God. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Again, why? Why are these policies being set out? It's not so that we can be more efficient. It's not so that the church can be more productive. It's so that God, in every relationship, can receive more glory. And to, to understand the service issues in the first century, we need to understand that there were multiple levels of servanthood in the first century. The first is actually this word that the New English Standard Version has, sorry, the English Standard Version has translated just literally, bond servants. The bond servant was the most common worker in the first century, in the Roman world. They were paid, but they were paying off a debt. Singaporeans, you understand this, right? You get a scholarship to go to a great university, and you come back to Singapore, and you are a bond servant. You like to say, I'm bonded. It means you have a job, but you're required to stay in that job until what? Your debt to your nation has been paid off. This was the first category of servants. This is a category that the Apostle Paul is addressing. Bond servants. It's a doulos. That's a, the Greek word. There's a lower level of servant called diakonos. They were house servants who waited on tables. This is what blows our mind. Why would God choose the seven what men to serve women? Because God turns man's idea of leadership upside down. I am glorified when men get off their perch and serve widows at a table. That's the second category, diakonos. Literally, the old Greek word means dust kicker because they were allowed the freedom to go out of the house, kicking around dust in the market, buying vegetables and, and fish, running back to put it on their master's table. There's, there's a third category of servants or slaves in the New Testament, huperates, only one office in the church identified them as 
huperates. And you've heard me say this before. The huperates were the lowest class of slaves. They were captured foreign fighters who spent every day, 24 hours a day, in chains. They were the men chained to a bench under decks rowing a warship. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that was so impressed with leadership and, and didn't love the Apostle Paul because he wrote great letters, but he was a boring preacher. The Apostle Paul wrote that church and said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 and 2, this is how you should consider us apostles as huperates. Pulling on oars. You see that those who desire to stand up they go below decks. They say, Lord, let you receive glory from my pulling on these oars, from the sound of my chains. And, and by the way, I, I'm not saying, so I'm, I'm so grateful that I'm chained to you. That's not what I'm saying. This is what <clears throat> the Apostle Paul said. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know that word controls? It means made captive. I'm not chained to you because I signed a contract. I'm chained to you because Christ's love captivates me it gives him glory when I serve him it gives him glory when we serve each other not because we feel obligation but because we've been captivated by the love of Christ and we no longer live for ourselves but for his glory in every relationship you know, uh, when we live life together, there's give. And if there's give, then there is also take. Well, Sherry and I know this couple. Okay, forget it. It's us. I'm telling another story about us. <laughs> we, we have a lot of guests in our home. Um, because we've served as missionaries for so long, we, we have a lot of missionary friends, and a lot of them are serving in difficult places. And so we've just opened up our home to them. We, we have them in our home often. Even when we're traveling, we just leave a key under the flower pot. Well, guys, there's a reason why we shouldn't do live streaming. <laughs> yes, there's a key under the flower pot. Just go to Ian and Sherry's place. You can have a nice warm bed. <laughs> we, we just let them come and, and here's what's amazing about Sherry she doesn't ever seem to be anxious about stuff she just you know gets the apartment ready she wants to make sure there's fruit in the fridge she cleans sheets on the bed she leaves little notes for people I get anxious about things that okay that don't matter at all okay I only get anxious about one thing soap <laughs> Sherry, Sherry will always have everything ready, and I always ask her the same question, is there, is there soap? Is there soap in the shower? I don't know why. I, I wish that I could fix myself, but I'm 60 already. I don't know how to fix this. I always get anxious about the soap, and, 
And, and then I check multiple times a day to see if she's put soap and she never does. <laughs> I, I guess assuming that I'm anxious about it, so I'm going to do it. So, so I always do it. <laughs> now, that's a recent picture because her sister's here. <laughs> you know, I want her sister to be clean when she meets you. And, and you know, this is what? For fair, smooth skin. Kind of redundant for white people, but, but it's, I like it. It's a honeycomb and microcrystals. Is that a good thing? Let's hope so. And, and world-class perfume, it says there. I don't know if you can read that. World-class perfume in, in the soap that I am anxious about and always goes there. You see, see when people come, we, we want to love on them. They, they've had difficulties. Many of them don't actually have work permits, they're going in and out on tourist passes, they're, they're often in crisis, they, they just come to Singapore and, and, and we just, just say, just relax, spend as long as you want, just walk on the East Coast Park, lay down your heart, be amazed that you can drink the water here, I always boast about that, and, and by the way, have you noticed there's fresh soap? <laughs> we give, they take, and, and by the way, um, resources are finite. So uh, I'm, I'm a recycler. This is Sherry's soap. <laughs> I don't know if she thought, so I'm going to wash myself and every missionary who's ever stayed here. Like there's like six bars of soap right there that I like pushed together. <laughs> and, and you know how many times Sherry's complained about that? I did the math. Not even once. <laughs> you know, not, not once. Because she's captivated. And when, when you're captivated, giving is not a sacrifice. Caring for people isn't a sacrifice. It just gives God glory. That's all. I want to invite you as we prepare our hearts to come to this table. I wonder if you have considered how your interaction in relationships either glorifies God or grieves Him. In everything we say, across generations, across genders, do we think, how can I build up God's child, made in his own image. How can I glorify God? How could I steward my breath right now in ways that bring Him glory? Maybe as you sit in the Lord's presence beneath the authority of His Word, you've perhaps begun to sense, wow, I, geez, Lord's Supper, and I've, I've already grieved Him This is why the Apostle Paul says, examine yourselves. You know, this table, it's a table for sinners. But it's a table for repentant sinners. So if God's Spirit has just exposed something in your heart right now, don't plan to let the bread pass. Why not right now say, oh God, have mercy. I turn to you afresh. 
And, and if you have caused someone grief, not just God, but if perhaps you have said something that was not well thought through, you didn't first ask yourself, how will this give God glory? Then as you turn afresh to God, will you allow Him to bring the name of that sister, that mother, that brother, that father to your heart? And will you invite God, equip me to go to that person and say, I'm sorry. I want God to receive glory for my communication with you, and He didn't. But I pledge to you today, He will, on this day, and everyone that follows. I, I didn't steward encouragement like I should have. But I pledge to you, on this day, and every other, I will. Can we imagine a future GBC where every relationship we have, every conversation is a reflection of God's glory and affection for His children? Father God, we bless You that You are a God who condescends who stoops low as we reach high, who longs to relate to the lonely. And I pray that you would make us a people after your own heart. Cause us to be men and women who would seek your glory in every relationship. Remind us that our policies, our procedures, are for more glory, not more efficiency. And move in your church in such a way that in every day, in every thought, you would find pleasure, and as those thoughts fruit out into conversations, you would be glorified. God, bring to our heart's mind those who are living even in social isolation, those who are alone and remind us that you are a father to the fatherless, that you care for widows. Make us a people after your own heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.